listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. A reading from Malachi. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. I really uh, have tried to be on my best behavior today. I wore a jacket. You know, we, we have family and friends coming in for the blessing this morning for Jackson. We also had a baptism at the last service. I also had some, uh, some of my own family from out of state was here. My, my cousin Mackenzie and her husband and their daughter. My brother was here. My sister was here. My folks are always here. And I thought, I really need to, like, you know, bring my A game today. And there were two nightmare scenarios that happened. One of them has happened before, and it was at the beginning of the last service. I hydrate a lot on Sunday mornings, and I needed to go to the restroom, number one, and it is possible that my microphone was turned on when that happened. (laughs) This was not the first time this has happened. This was not the second time this has happened. This was the third time that that's happened. You think that I would learn. The other nightmare scenario was on this day where, you know, I know we've got friends and, friends and family here, mine and some of other people, were talking about this topic of money, which would be like the last thing I choose to talk about when I've got guests here. This is the topic that makes people's blood pressure skyrocket when you start discussing that in church world. And uh, it's actually true. I've looked back on my own sermon archives, and in the six and a half or so years of Cornerstone being a church, I have literally never preached a sermon, a full sermon on the topic of money and giving. Here's why I'm doing it. Two reasons. One, our board politely asked me to do it before the year was over, and I said, okay, I will do it. The other reason is that it was actually assigned to us. We follow this thing called the lectionary. The lectionary assigns to us the scriptures that we read so that generally over the course of three years, we're going to read and preach through the breadth of the whole Bible. So I don't just get to cherry pick all the ones that I like and already know how to preach. I have to deal with the ones that make me a little bit uncomfortable. And this is one of those topics that for me can be a source of discomfort or anxiety, and I know that it probably can be for you as well. Uh, The topic of money is one that has been handled, from my perspective, poorly at times by pastors. 
And it's one that actually because of my personality, precisely because we're entering into a season where we will be raising some money, I'm naturally inclined to avoid it because I want my motives to be pure. I like this, this topic of money to be talked about in the context of discipleship. It feels a little bit um, icky to me when it feels like pastors are doing it in a way that is self-serving. So I've generally just tried to avoid this topic, but here it is in the Scriptures for us today, and we've got to deal with it. One reason it's so important that we do actually talk about it is Jesus discusses the centrality or the role that wealth plays as a kind of existential threat to our allegiance to Him. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. This is the language of covenant, hate and love. It's, it's where's your total devotion? You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. One of the concerns that I would say I do have, motivated by love for the people of this church that I get to serve, is with regard to our relationship with wealth. And when I say I'm concerned about our relationship with wealth, I don't mean just currency, whether you have money or don't have money. I mean the culture and the communities and the values surrounding wealth. And how those circles, those communities, those values shape and form us. Even just the desire to be in those circles can shape and form us, inviting competition and anxiety and clickiness and image obsession. It's a culture, as one person said, that is both seductive and oppressive. And I believe that this is a part of our lives where Jesus wants to offer us freedom. He wants to give us liberty from this oppressive spirit, but there's an idol standing between us and the doorway to freedom. And that idol is personified in the Scriptures through the name Mammon. And Mammon represents this like false god, this pseudo-deity of wealth that so many people bow down to and worship. And today, this morning, we're going to explore how the Scriptures invite us both into freedom and just a lightness of heart with regard to this topic of money and wealth as we steward our resources. But in candor, I wish the Scripture assigned for today would have been almost anything but the one that was assigned in Malachi chapter 3. If you've ever been in prosperity gospel circles or word of faith circles, this passage in Malachi chapter 3 is like the poster boy passage for the practice of tithing. And I'm uncomfortable with the way that many times this passage has been handled for, for like four reasons. One of those is that this passage about if you honor me, stop robbing me, honor me with the tithe, I'll pour out blessings, is often presented in a very transactional way like God's a slot machine. So you put in your tithe, you pull the arm, and you put out your hands to receive your blessing. I have heard a preacher say, if you tithe, God has to bless you. And I'm like, like, look out for lightning striking. I get really nervous when people say what God has to do or what God can't do. Be on alert. I have also heard a preacher, and you can Google this later, uh, or maybe you shouldn't Google this later, who stood in front of his church and, and taught people to echo after him, money cometh to me now. That if I tithe, money is going to come to me right now, and I am commanding that to happen. I'm not so sure about that. 
This passage is also often presented in a religiously cloaked, self-centered, wealth-obsessed way, where the goal is not honoring God, the goal is not truly following Jesus, the goal is economic relief, the goal is getting rich. Another challenge I have with the way that many people handle this passage is it's the primary listening audience for these messages is often historically disenfranchised communities and the poor whose needs and vulnerabilities and desire for upward mobility are being exploited. And fourth, it's often presented by ministers who live incredibly opulent and extravagant lives built on the sacrificial giving and the faith of the poor who, as it turns out, in supporting this ministry are not all getting escalades and bling. But if the only way to change culture is to create more of it, then what I hope to do this morning is to give a fresh reading to this passage of Scripture, trying to think rightly about it, as well as some others in the Scriptures, so that we can think rightly and act honorably and be well and be free and unencumbered in our life and the stewardship of our resources. So Malachi shows up as the last book for us in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, the way it's organized, it's, it's the end of the prophets, but it's followed by the writings. But it feels to us like it's got the last word in the Old Testament. Malachi is, comes from the great tradition of the prophets into the people of Judah. He's, he's prophesying at the time following the exile. So through many prophets, Isaiah, etc., God says, repent, 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 or something's going to happen. And the something happened, they're sent into exile for 70 or so years. The people return to the land, but they do not return to their former glory. And God, through the prophet, is calling the people to return to the observance of the covenant that God had made with Moses. In this covenant, just like others in the ancient Near East, had stipulations, here are the things you must do to abide by my covenant. There are also benefits of the covenant. If you do these things, God says, I will do these things for you. There are also curses that are a part of the covenant. There are penalties for not obeying the agreement what the people of God had with God. One of the chief ways, according to Malachi, that the people were violating this covenant was failing to practice the tithe. To tithe was to give 10% of, of one's resources through the faith community. What many people don't know is there were actually several types of tithes. There's the one that we all think of, which was a tithe of all produce and livestock, so it's not, people are not dealing chiefly in currency, they're dealing with the stuff they have. It's an agrarian society. And so they're tithing, you know, their, their cattle, they're tithing their wheat, they're tithing the other things that come from the ground. There's also, according to Deuteronomy, a tithe for the poor, which was a tithe that rotated every three years. And then finally, there was what I'm calling a pilgrimage tithe. You can also find this in Deuteronomy chapter 14 which is like a really fancy religious picnic where God says, take a tithe of all of your stuff and carry it to the place where I'm going to cause my name to dwell, the temple or the tabernacle, and eat it in my presence. God's like, every year I want you and your family to bring a tithe of your stuff and sit before the Lord and eat this fancy picnic and remember it's the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Now, this doesn't take into consideration some other things required by God in the stewardship of the resources of the people of Israel. You've also, you've perhaps heard of the idea of gleanings, that as the people, as they're working their land, they're shucking their corn, that some may fall on the ground, and God says, don't pick up the stuff that falls. 
Similarly, leave the corners of your fields unharvested for one purpose. It's for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrants to come and be able to feed off of the land. So the tithe was actually much more than a simple 10% as we think about it. The tithe, taken with these other kinds of tithes, with the gleanings, with the corners of your field, could actually be closer to 20% or even at times 30% of one's resources or even beyond it. What was the purpose of the tithe? First of all, the tithe provided for everyday worship in the temple. So God required that there always be bread on the altar, that there always be oil, that there always be sacrifices. We could say that one purpose of the tithe was like the everyday work of ministry. A second provision of the tithe was that if you remember the conquest by Joshua and the people of the land, as they divvied things up, they didn't divide it into 12 tribes, they divided it into 11. And the Levites were, were to be provided for, they were the ones who cared in the t- served in the tabernacle and the temple. They were to be cared for, their needs provided for, by the needs of everybody else through worship. So the tithe had a provision for the priests and the Levites. Thirdly, the the tithe went toward mercy and justice, or what we might call benevolence. It tended to the needs of the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the stranger. And then the tithe was also given in worship to God, that the first and not the last of one's resources went to honor the Lord who blessed their efforts, who blessed their land. They gave Him credit for all that came in. Now, not unlike other practices in the community of Israel, to maintain this level of giving, 10, 20, 30 percent to the Lord, required some serious organization and planning. Now, imagine that tomorrow your income dropped by 10 to 30 percent. Some of you know what that's like. That's a scary thing. Imagine that tomorrow your income dropped by 10 to 30 percent. You would all of a sudden have to make some quick changes. All of a sudden, if you hadn't had a budget before, you're going to have a budget right now. And the practice of tithing had an ordering effect on the community of Israel. It's kind of like the idea of a keystone habit. Some people will say, you know, when you wake up in the morning, if you make your bed, it's like the first domino that falls in what will turn out to be a great day. Get making your bed right, get this keystone habit right, and it's going to set you up to get lots of other habits right. Well, it's safe to say that in failing to tithe, all kinds of chaos and disorder were being brought into the community. The shape and the values of the life of the people of God had become unruly and untenable. The temple was neglected, the ministers couldn't, uh, they didn't have their needs met, the poor were ignored, and God's name was being dishonored. And so the failure to tithe, the failure to observe this keystone habit was emblematic of a greater failure within the community. It signaled that God's people had broken the covenant and were failing to fulfill God's purposes for them. It's kind of like, I don't know if it was like Led Zeppelin or Guns N' Roses or somebody, but there's some band, some of you will remember, who in the writer of their contract stipulated that they had to have a bowl of 1,000 brown M&Ms in the green room before they go on a show. And like, these rock stars, they're so full of themselves. But it was like a canary in the coal mine kind of thing where if the, the, the hosting people in the venue observed to the level of detail this small requirement for a thousand brown M&Ms, then the safety of the whole show was likely to be um, secure. 
that the rigging was going to meet the, the requirements, that the weight requirements for the stage were going to be just fine. It was, it was a sign that everything else was being tended to, and the failure to tithe showed that the people of Israel were off course. God said to the prophet, listen, there is a way of life that is blessed, that is good, that is right. And you, my people, will find that I bless the orderliness and the prioritization of first things. He actually tells his people to test him, test him if this is not a better way to live. For the person who's never given, you just see the loss. It's difficult to see the gain. And God says, not only will you reap the blessings, but your neighbors are going to notice the kind of community you are when you obey my commands. God says, when you do this, all of the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Their order, their worship, their planning, their charity, their benevolence to the poor was going to make them a, a light in a dark land. When we, when we read this, we realize, oh, this is so much more than the materialistic money cometh to me now message. This message about tithing is about justice. It's about mercy. It's about ordering the life of a community. It's about worship and the mission of the people of God. Now, significantly, when we turn over to the New Testament, you have to look pretty hard to find a command to tithe. One place we see a tithe as an issue in, in conversation with Jesus is Jesus is talking to the, the religious elite. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It's good to tithe one's resources, but Jesus says, this is not the end I'm shooting for among my people. I'm shooting for a just, merciful, faithful people. Beyond this, in my reading of the Scriptures, you are not going to find a command in the New Testament that we should tithe. When it comes to the topic of giving and money more broadly, however, the New Testament actually has a lot to say. We could go to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So do you want to see where a person's heart is? Look at what they're treasuring. Look at how they're stewarding their resources. You think about Jesus who says, give to everyone who asks of you. He says, look, if you've got two shirts, bless you, brother, bless you. <laughs> if you've got two shirts, give one of them to the person who has no shirt. We read the story in the book of Acts of how salvation shows up mightily in economic terms. How in the, in the early days of the church, people pooled all of their resources. They sell land, all of the proceeds go to the church, and there's no need among them. We don't see this repeated in the Scriptures or advocated for in the Scriptures, but one sign that salvation had come to those houses was in economic terms. A lot of the teaching that we see in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul has to do with a special love offering that he was cheering on for the church in Jerusalem. They had, uh, the, many of the Gentile believers had special affection in their hearts for the church in Jerusalem because, uh, you know, Jesus was Jewish. 
So the, the gospel came to them firstly through this Jewish community, and so they wanted to care for their brothers and sisters. So a couple of quick highlights. First uh, Corinthians, Paul says now about the collection for the Lord's people. This is the church in Jerusalem. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, Resurrection Day, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. This was evidently a big talking point with the Corinthians because he brought it up in his next letter, 2 Corinthians 8. He says, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I testify they were able, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Listen to this. So since you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, if I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, Paul. This sounds like mom who says, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not commanding you, but if you really love me. There's a little bit of that in this. But he says, I'm not commanding you. The next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, he says, remember, whoever sows sparingly, he's talking about giving, will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. And Paul blesses them in their thinking about giving. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And then finally, a chapter that I think is very important for us, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share, and in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant. Now, many of us feel relieved because... We can say, I'm not rich, I'm off the hook. Now, that's probably true. You think about in, in like the context of our, our city, in the context of our country, many of us are not among the 1%. But zoom out a little bit beyond our, you know, middle class, midtown Tulsa circles. 
And think about how our wealth compares to the rest of the world. Did you know that if you are a single person who earns $45,000 a year, you are wealthier than 98% of people living right now? Did you know that if you are a married couple whose household income is $80,000 and you have two children, you are wealthier than 96.2 people on planet Earth right now? 96.2% of people on planet Earth right now. It's very easy to feel like we're losing the comparison game in our little circles, but we have to remember that we are living in a bubble. The way that we live is different than how the majority of people in the world right now live, how the majority of people in world history have lived. We are unbelievably blessed, all of us. So I think you think about these passages I've shared, Sermon on the Mount, Acts, the Corinthian correspondence, some highlights of New Testament giving from, these, from this text. The Scriptures show us that giving should be joyful, giving should be voluntary, giving should be habitual, often sacrificial, for the benefit of others, in accordance with one's income, meaning there's a sliding scale given through the church, given out of love, in a non-transactional way, something that God actually does bless, something that we can get better at. It results in thanks to God, and it's something that we can do as a way of not putting our hope in wealth and treasuring eternal things. Now, to the relief of perhaps some of you, I can tell you that in my reading of the New Testament, the New Testament does not demand a 10% tithe of followers of Jesus. That's the good news, in a sense, the bad news, the challenging news is I believe the Scriptures are much more challenging than that. That the way of Jesus invites us to have such a confident sense of our security and safety in Christ and confidence in His provision for us, that we can be truly open-handed and detached in our relationship with money, not allowing it to sink its hooks into our hearts, that we would voluntarily and joyfully and habitually give as an overflow of our love for God, our love for others, our concern for the world. And so to me, the question that is often posed in a sermon like this, the question being, how much do I have to give, is entirely the wrong question. It's a question like, how many times do I have to tell my nephew happy birthday? Or how many times do I have to kiss my wife? Or how many times do I have to tell my children that I love them? Well, the asking of the question, the framing of the question shows how how we've misunderstood the whole thing. We've gotten the posture all wrong. Instead of asking, you know, how much do I have to give, a better question is, Lord, how may I position my relationship with wealth, with all of the resources under my care, so that I can be free and full of trust and light and easy of heart and honor you? That's a better and a harder question. A a book that I recommend to all of you, which I've mentioned before and will mention again, is The Tech Wise Family by the author Andy Crouch, one of my very favorites. And Andy Crouch in this book, The Tech Wise Family, says that one phenomenon in our time is that technology and our, our devices and screens has just developed so rapidly that we haven't had the opportunity to develop generational wisdom. 
So some of you were around in our church when my grandmother Marie Smith was living, and Grandma went to be with the Lord at 97. And I couldn't go to Grandma and say, Grandma Marie, how, when you were my age and had young kids, how did you manage your relationship with your iPhone? We haven't had the opportunity to develop generational wisdom with regard to our technology. It's come up at us so quickly. This is true regarding technology, but it is not true with regard to finances and money. We have had time for generations of people, generations of followers of Jesus to wrestle with this this issue and think, how can we proceed and be well? So I would say, while the New Testament simply does not command tithing, It is a practice from the treasury of wisdom that we have inherited. And a voluntary practice of tithing as a starting point is a healthy and biblical way for us, as it was for the people of Israel, of creating order in one's life and committing to honoring God in one's life and keeping the idol of mammon at bay in one's life that can actually be a true gift to us in training our hearts to keeping money in its proper place. So here's why I actually want to recommend this practice of tithing to you in your life with Jesus for your own good. Imagine being among the people of Israel the first time that the, the, the Sabbath is presented as a requirement that you're going to take one whole day a week to rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Well, all of a sudden, the requirements of that one day required the whole community to get the other six days of their life in order in preparation for the one day. And in the same way, the weekly observance or the the regular practice of tithing, that 10%, requires us to get the other 90% of our financial life in order, which can mean doing that very uncomfortable task of honestly assessing what constitutes a want and what constitutes a need. And this practice for many of us will require us to make choices to cut things out of our lives. I find when those moments come, when that has to happen, it's like, we're going to have to cut something, that my first response is just catatonic anger. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't want to do that at all. I don't even see how it's physically possible. And when we start to ask things like, if I give, am I going to be able to dress the way that I want to? Am I going to be able to have the house or the car that I want? Am I going to be able to have the life of leisure like I want? We realize in beginning to ask these questions how a conversation about money is so much more than merely about money or currency. We realize that when we talk about money, we're talking about identity. We're talking about security, how we fit in social circles, our deepest fears and hopes, and we realize when we begin to have a conversation about money that there is a lot tangled up in these hearts of ours on this topic, and a lot of evidence for ways in which we are not full of trust, we are not light of heart, we are not open-handed. What I want to say is that in the tumult in your own heart that you may feel, the fear that you may feel as I present the wisdom of this practice, what I want to say to you is that God in His compassion sees you. And God who knows you, 
who knows what you need before you ask, wants to bring order and freedom and proper perspective to this very core aspect of your life. And I also want to suggest to you that any revulsion or discomfort you feel toward His work in you in that area only highlights how important it is. And if you're wriggling on the inside, it could be a sign that an idol has been outed and is afraid it's going to be ousted. Now, some of you may say, my issue is so far from excess that it is laughable. They're like, I have literally cut everything that there is to cut, and I am broke. Well, I get it. I would say, however, that there are probably two kinds of broke. One of those is actually broke. It's really broke. Where you've trimmed everything. Like the wants are out the window. You're, you're pure needs right now. And there's just not enough to go around. Well, a couple of things I would say to that person. Many of us have been there. It's really challenging to empathize. I would say, one, the Scriptures, I think, commend us as Christians to be people who work really hard. We should work hard and we should rest. We're not machines. But we should be people who work really hard. Uh, the Scriptures say, if a man will not work, he will not eat. It's, it's incumbent on us to steward our skills, our resources, our creativity to the best of our ability. We should work hard and we should be resourceful. We should consider how we can earn more income. Also say to those people, give what you can and what you can give may be simply of yourself. It may be giving of your time. It may be giving of your skills. I would also say that in some cases, and the Scripture really lays this out in the New Testament, in some cases it's really clear that the church should be supporting you. The church should be coming alongside you in compassion. And it happens in the life of our church that people have medical bills, as an example, that just pile up and they don't know how they're going to get out from under them. Or people are in acute seasons of difficulty and it is right for the church to come alongside people in those situations. What a shame to think about putting the tithe on that person as just an unmanageable burden and associate that with shame. The reason you're not doing well is because you're not tithing. Oh, what a shame. The church should come alongside you in those seasons of vulnerability. There's really broke, actually broke. There's also another kind of broke where if you'll, you know, pardon my French, it's stupid broke. And it's where you have not managed yourself. You have not managed your skills, your resources, your work ethic. Um, and this is why you're in the pickle that you're in. And I would come in to you to get your house in order. If you don't know how to make a budget, I'll be delighted to introduce you, pe you to people who are not me, who know how to make a budget. <laughs> but we should work hard. It, with the, the resources you have, the skills you have, the experience you have, it is incumbent on you to work really hard. And the church can come alongside you and support you in your efforts. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there's another category of people who, for whom I'm convinced that tithing is just not nearly challenging enough. It is not bad to be rich. I'm so unbelievably grateful for how rich people I know have stewarded their resources. You know, funny example, the first time I walked into the gathering place, I was like, man, thank you, George. <laughs> thank you, corporations. This is awesome. What a great way to be rich. I thank God for rich people. 
It's not bad to be rich, but I will tell you, it can be hard to be rich. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You remember the interaction Jesus had with one rich young ruler, a guy who Jesus knew the idol of mammon has set up shop in his heart. And Jesus said to this young man, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the man walked away sad. We also have as as a foil to that story, the story of Zacchaeus who had abused his position and, and was unjust in his financial dealings with people. And Jesus said, truly, salvation has come to this house. And the evidence of salvation was he was doing justice in his financial world and rectifying his wrongs. It's not bad to be rich, but it can be hard to be rich. And it may be uh, the path of wisdom for some of the people who fit into that category to carefully consider what you actually need to live on and then Give away everything else. Send everything away under the care of others. Now, I don't get a lot of amens at these points like this in a sermon. (laughs) The whole thing may sound untenable, unrealistic, unreasonable to you. It may sound crazy, as the, the whole practice of tithing may. Why would I volunteer to do that? I'll tell you, I am not commending to you something that I'm unwilling to do myself. I learned this from my parents, and it's good if you can start these kind of habits early. When I had my first job at the Catering Connection, you know, seven four nine zero nine three two from Black Tie to Chicken Fry, uh, and I got you know a check for fifty six dollars. There's there's like five dollars and sixty cents in cash going into the little offering bag at Woodlake Assembly of God. Uh, I understand like this, I'm commending to you something that I'm practicing myself. I would also say I understand and what what I call these pressure cooker years of being early in my career and having young kids at home, why it seems like a completely unfeasible thing to do to actually give or to tithe. I understand why it would be so easy not to. But I believe it is, it is better that my kids and yours have parents who are laboring to trust and honor God in this way who are actively resisting the dangers of wealth that Jesus said could choke out our response to the gospel. It's better to have that than having the newest and the biggest and the best of everything. And it is better for all of us to live within constraints. It is better for all of us in a world that is stricken with affluenza to resist. Remembering the words of Jesus who said, what good is it? if you gain the whole world and yet you lose your soul. I did something this week that I don't normally do, which is I listened to uh, the news on the radio as I was driving into work. And as soon as I turned it on, I heard this fascinating story about um, how nearsightedness in children is on the rise. It's up 40% nearsightedness in children. And they began to explain the reason that it's happening is that more kids are spending more of their time looking at screens like this. And why are they doing it? Because they're seeing their parents do the exact same thing. Every one of us, myself included, is having to learn how to draw boundaries with our screens. But it's actually having a biological effect on the shape of children's eyes, causing them to be nearsighted because it's training their eye to believe that this is as far as I need to be able to see. That this is the end point that my my eye needs to have the capacity to capture. 
And the same thing happens when our relationship with wealth is not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we obsess about status and image and stuff and competition, we train our hearts to think that these things are ultimate. And we develop a nearsightedness of the heart that warps our hearts and distorts our perspective on the world. Now, what was really fascinating in this, in this news story, they had two prescriptions, two things that you can do to help your child regain their, their full sense of sight that are actually pretty easy to implement. One was a special kind of contacts that children would wear at night while they're sleeping. And by implementing this corrective structure, they could reform what had been deformed over time. And the other was simply to take them outside and get your children to look to the horizon as far as they could see. Training their eyes to remember that the world is bigger than this little shiny rectangle that I have in front of me. By giving their eyes a broader endpoint, they could be retrained to see that the world is big and vast and full of beauty and color. And in a similar way, we desperately need to retrain our hearts to see the broader story that we find ourselves in and to ask ourselves, having removed those things that we've obsessed over, some of the basic questions of, for what purpose do I exist? What is the purpose of wealth? What actually matters and what is the purpose of my life? I like the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a good one but I think it gets something wrong. You say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And I actually think that the opposite is true. That when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, looking to the horizon, and consequently when our, our hearts are being reordered, and brought back in again to the broader story that God is writing in, in human history and creation, we begin to see the things of earth clearer. We see them for what they really are, ultimately small and not something to which we should pledge our allegiance. My prayer is that God would so move among us, God who loves to provide for us, would save us from the deceptiveness of wealth that we would voluntarily put it in its proper place in loving submission to the Lord Jesus, who being in very form God did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who for our sake became poor, they may, like Zacchaeus, God bring salvation to our house so that those who are outside of the family of God would find us to be people who are delightful. And if we're learning anything in the world right now, it's that it sure feels like it's falling apart at the seams. And the world needs us to have our house in order. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would restore to us a grand imagination 
and an unshakable confidence in your ability to provide for us. It's so easy for us to have a scarcity mentality set in, to have a fear mentality set in, and to think that, that you know, even doing it with good intentions to honor you, there's just not enough to go around. I pray that you would prove yourself, as, as through Malachi you called people to test you, that you'd prove yourself to be a great provider. And may we engage with you in this way, not in a way that's transactional or like we're twisting your arm or manipulating you, but maintaining wealth as the chief desire of our lives. May we do it in just a relational capacity. Like I think of, you know, someone said the only way to trust someone is to trust them, to try it. And in trusting you, Lord, may we find you utterly trustworthy. It is a miracle of God when salvation comes to a house like Zacchaeus's. It's a miracle when people who are trained to be materialistic give it up and are open-handed and light of heart. May salvation come to our house in this way. Lord, would you pour out your Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by His blood. This we pray in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face towards you and give you peace.